All right, if you would turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, I'll remind you while you're doing that that we, have the, we still have several of these Genesis scripture journals uh, in the back if you would like to take one with you. They are for you, so enjoy. We're going to be in Genesis for a while, so that'll help you have a place to keep some thoughts. So we're in Genesis 1 and 2 this morning, sections, uh, selections from it. Um, we're going to be in a lot of different places. I, I'll read them and you don't have to try to find them. I'm going to be using a lot of scripture this morning, so um, hang on. Let me pray. Well, no, I'll, I'll pray in a second. Uh, let me tell you what I've been thinking about this week I, as I was preparing for this uh, message. Uh, Friday night, first game of the World Series. Anyone watch the first game of the World Series? Three of us, okay. Um, let me give you, I was, I was shocked at the intro on Fox's production of the World Series first game. I'm going to try to give it to you, describe it to you a little bit here, and listen carefully to what the announcer said. So the whole thing starts with this music starting to swell, and there's a choir from the Texas Southern University uh, that starts clapping and stomping and singing uh, that old classic, he's got the whole world in his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Remember that one? So they're starting to sing in the background. And the announcer says, baseball lives in our souls, in the emotions of autumn, a spiritual game. He's got the whole world. Great with passion and cathedrals of green grass. Fireworks spray in the night sky on the screen. Heavenly lights swirl in a chorus of adulation. All the diamond treasures are here on this night. And this stage, dreams of a lifetime coming true. He's got the whole world in his hands. From this one season, one team will be revered for eternity as a champion. He's got the whole world in his hands. Grasp the moment. Brace your faith. Face what awaits. Philadelphia, Houston, believe. When just four and the whole world. In your hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Wow. I thought I was watching a worship service. Um, and uh, Minute Maid Park in Houston was the temple, the cathedral of green grass. Um, there was this clash of gods the Astros versus the Phillies that was about to take place, and one uh, group of gods would emerge as the eternal champion. And the, the temple was full of priests, all clothed in their appropriate priestly garb. Um, and they were exalting and enjoying and hoping to expand the glory of their gods. Friends, all of us 
We can't escape it. We were made to exalt and enjoy and expand the enjoyment of the life-giving presence of something bigger than us. We can't help it. It leaks out of us. It leaked out of 100,000-plus people at Neyland Stadium last night in Knoxville. We were made to worship. So where did that come from? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 are telling us the beginning of the story that the whole Bible tells to answer that question. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to be in part of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So if you'll stand with me and hear the word of the God who loves you. (coughs) Excuse me. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26, where did I leave my water? I'm sorry. Thank you. 26 through 28, thank you. And then we're going to skip to Genesis 2, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. And then God said, let us make man in our own image after our, our, our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Uh, Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us now to um, understand it and uh, help me to, uh, 
to explain it, <laughs> to preach Jesus. Help us to see him, we ask in his name. Amen. The Celtic Christians of the um, medieval times used to talk about thin places. Uh, thin places, they said, were, were places where the membrane, so to speak, between uh, the physical world and the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm, was, was so thin uh, that heaven and earth had come together in that place in a way that you could experience the presence of God in a way that you might not in other places. They called them thin places. It was a very interesting concept. The Bible actually uh, describes similar places. Remember, we're going to see it in Genesis later. Jacob, remember, was, uh, had a vision of this staircase to heaven, and angels were descending and ascending the staircase, and uh, the Lord told him he was in a holy place, and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. That was kind of a thin place. Moses in the burning bush could be called a thin place where Moses met with God in a way that he normally didn't. Um, the disciples, when, uh, the, Peter, James, and John, when they went up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus uh, unveiled all of his glory before them, and they saw him as he is in his glory. That was a kind of thin place where heaven and earth came together. Well, one of the, the major thin places that God actually uh, assigned and, and gave to the people of Israel was the tabernacle, or which later became the temple. It was a thin place given by God to his people so they could know his life-giving presence in a special way. And in fact, God had always intended for that kind of thin place to be permanent. You see, God created the heavens and the earth, all of the heavens and the earth, the entire cosmos, to be a cosmic temple where he could dwell with his people forever. And the whole story of the Bible is the story of how God began to build that cosmic temple, how he is building it, and how he will bring about the completion of that cosmic temple uh, one day. So this morning, um, what I would like to do is to show you a little bit of that story of the cosmic temple uh, and how it relates to Genesis. But we need to start with the end of the story in order for you to see it in the beginning, okay? So... You may be familiar with some of this, but I want, to, I want to remind us of the end of the story, the end of the book, Revelation 21 and 22, when John sees a new heaven and a new earth uh, coming down, and he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God, that's temple language, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then John says uh, that an angel showed him the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I won't describe. You need to go read Revelation 21 and 22 if you haven't lately, or uh, join the women's Bible study as they're studying Revelation this 
this fall. But he goes on to describe the dimensions of this new Jerusalem, this holy city. And it's fascinating that the, the dimensions were really of a giant cube. And if you actually calculated out the dimensions, that cube would probably take up about half the uh, landmass of the United States. But it doesn't really matter how big the actual measurements are, because the point was that for those people in that time, they couldn't imagine a place this big. They couldn't imagine a city this big. But it was shaped like a cube because the Holy of Holies in the temple was shaped like a cube. And this large size would point to the fact that the whole new heavens and earth, the whole new Jerusalem would be the holiest part of the temple where God's presence dwells. And God's people would dwell there with him in perfect, unbroken, unhindered relationship forever. This is the picture that God gave John about what's coming. He goes on to say that that there was no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus. The city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. One of the jobs of the priests was to guard and keep the temple pure. And then the angel showed him a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is a description of the cosmic temple that God is planning to create uh, for us to enjoy. That's our destiny. This is what God has been up to from the beginning. And when all is said and done, God will expand his garden city temple to permeate every square inch of the new heavens and new earth in which he will dwell with his people forever. So that's the end of the story, but I have two questions. What does that have to do with Genesis? And what does that have to do with you and me today? Let's talk about that. I'll try to answer those two questions as quickly as I can. First, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, Uh, God is showing us the blueprint for this cosmic garden city temple that we just saw in Revelation. And you know how blueprints work uh, if you've built a house. Blueprints are a true representation of what the builder intends to build. But after the project's completed, you, you can look at the blueprint and you can look at the house and you can see their similarities But the actual house is so much better than the blueprint. And so if you think about what we've already discovered in the last few weeks from Genesis 1 and 2, it's mind-blowing, it's unbelievable what God created when he created everything by the breath of his, by the mind that he spoke. Um, 
And if that's the blueprint, then imagine what it'll be like to live in the house. So how do we know that Eden really is meant to be a tabernacle or temple? How, how do we know that it really is the blueprint? Um, because it's true that Genesis 1 and 2 don't really say that Eden is a temple. But when you see how the Bible describes the tabernacle and the temple later um, that God told his people to build, Genesis 1 and 2 actually show that Eden was meant to be a temple. So let's look at some of the things we know about the tabernacle or the temple that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm not apologizing for this, but I'm just warning you. I'm just going to, we're going to go through a bunch of Bible study right here, and it's really cool stuff. And I wish that I could tell you that uh, this is just scratching the surface, okay? Um, so strap on your seatbelt, let's go. Here, here's a couple of things. God patterned the tabernacle and temple after Eden. Listen to this. The tabernacle and temple that came later had three parts, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies, which was that cube-shaped room that's on the inside. The outer court of the temple, of the tabernacle, had an altar of earth, it was called. It was made of uncut stone. And then there was a large basin of water called the sea. And that altar of earth and the sea represented the wider visible earth God created for humanity to inhabit. So in Genesis 1, he separated the land from the waters. So that's the outer court. The interior design of the holy place, if God was an interior designer, he would like florals because the holy place was full of flowers uh, in the tapestries, in the um, pillars, in the in the uh, lampstands, it was full of open flowers and fruit and palm trees. And then there were blue curtains to represent the sky. Um, and inside the holy place were three things. There was a lampstand that looked like a tree, if you've ever seen a menorah. It's the lampstand that has six branches that come out of it and one branch on the top. And there's a light on each branch. And each of those little cups that held uh, the flame were open flowers. So it was a tree. It represented the tree of life. The tree of life representing the light and life of God's presence. And in the holy place, there was a table of bread. God provided food for Adam and Eve and fellowship with them. God does that with his people. And then there was an altar of incense and this was just a sweet-smelling aroma. It represents the prayers of God's people. It represents God's people depending on him and his presence. It represents them communing and communicating with him. And so the holy place was like uh, the Garden of Eden. There's the, the whole earth, and then the garden, and then there's a holy of holies. The holy of holies in the temple behind the curtain, uh, represented the unseen heavenly realm of God's creation. The Ark of the Covenant was in there with the cherubim, angels, the winged angels, uh, where the Bible says God sits enthroned above the cherubim. 
God is in his throne room surrounded by heavenly beings. So this is a part of Eden that you can't see. It's the unseen realm that God created when he created everything else. So the temple was also adorned with gold and precious stones like the ones that are described in Genesis chapter 2 that we just read. And then the entrance to the Garden of Eden, we find out later in chapter 3 when he posts uh, cherubim there with a flaming sword to guard the way back in. The entrance was on the east. The temple's entrance was on the east. In fact, all ancient Near Eastern temples of other religions always faced east. So this, the, the pattern of the temple is really the pattern of Eden. Eden was a temple. But also, God's presence dwells in his temple. And, and since the temple was the place where the priests experienced God's special presence, God is described in Genesis 3 as walking back and forth. And uh, actually, the priests are, uh, God is described as walking back and forth with his people in his tabernacle, in his tent, as they traveled from place to place. And in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that God was prone to walk in the garden, and he was looking for Adam and Eve, and they had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So the fact that God's presence dwells in this temple, God's presence dwelt in the same language as used in Eden. And then, thirdly, God's priests serve in his temple. This is fascinating. When I first heard this, I thought, oh, this is really cool. Um, In Numbers chapter 18 and in other places in the Bible, the priests' duties were described by two words, uh, that they would keep guard over the sanctuary and the altar, and that they would serve in the tabernacle or the temple. Keep guard and serve. And those are the same words that are used in Genesis 2.15 when God said he put Adam in the garden to work and keep it, to serve and keep guard over it. So the priests were called to watch over the temple to protect the purity of the place of God's presence. And they were called to do the work of service in the temple to promote the purpose for which the place of God's presence was made. It was made for God and people to relate and rule together. And this is what Adam and Eve, the first priests, were asked to do in Genesis 2.15. So in Eden... God's priests work in and work and watch over his garden temple. And finally, as I'm trying to build this case that Eden is a temple, God's provision comes from his temple. And what did God provide for his people from his garden temple throne? Well, uh, Genesis tells us that he put a tree of life there. He made Um, every kind of tree spring up that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Later in chapter 3, we're going to learn that Adam and Eve ate from, that if they had eaten from the tree of life, they would have had eternal life. So the tree of life served as, among possibly other things, it served as a reminder that humanity must depend on God alone for life. 
But there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And remember, God had been saying all along what was good and what was not in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve had to live dependent on God to know what was good and what was evil. They had to depend on his word to know the difference. But to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would mean that they rejected God as the source of good and the source of life. They would reject him and want to find good and life on their own. Only God provides life in all its fullness and goodness. So he provides the tree of life. And as I said already, the lampstand in the temple was modeled, was supposed to be um, a symbol of the tree of life in the garden. But God also provided, Genesis 2 tells us, a river of life. In Genesis chapter 2, we read about the river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. It's interesting that Ezekiel's vision of the renewed temple uh, in Ezekiel 47, uh, Ezekiel sees a river flowing out from the throne of God, out from underneath the temple. I would invite you, read Ezekiel 47 someday. It's a great uh, part of his vision. And as he watched this river spread throughout the land, the land, wherever the river flowed, the land would begin to teem and swarm with life. It sounds very much like the Garden of Eden when God first created it. And and Ezekiel says it even flows into the Dead Sea, which is just mostly salt and nothing grows there. And the Dead Sea became uh, something that teemed and swarmed with life. So wherever this river flowed, life would happen. In fact, that's what Ezekiel 47, 9 says. Wherever the river flows, everything will live. So, Eden is God's garden temple. It's the blueprint for what God's going to do, what he's going to build at the end that we get to enjoy. And what we get to enjoy then will be so much better than the blueprint. So here's another question. What were the priests to do in the garden temple? What were Adam and Eve um, called to do in their ministry as priests? Three things. You ready? Exalt, enjoy, and expand quickly. The priest's role, Adam and Eve's role in the garden temple was to exalt the life-giving presence of God, to give him worship, to give him praise and glory. Remember last week I told you that they were, they were the images of God. There were no images, created images in God's temple. All the pagan temples had images of their gods. God created the images in his temple, Adam and Eve, and they were to reflect and resemble and represent his glory, his greatness, his goodness, and his grace to give him praise. But they were also priests, and priests serve for the worship of God. They help the people worship God. And so uh, Adam and Eve were asked to cultivate the garden as a place that would reflect God's glory, that would be a place full of his worship. So they exalt the life-giving presence of God. Then they enjoy the life-giving presence of God. Um, This is fascinating. When Genesis 2 says that God put 
Adam in the Garden of Eden? It literally says God rested Adam in the Garden of Delight. Eden means delight, and the word for put, which I don't know why sometimes they don't translate the, the more colorful word, but it says God rested him in the Garden of Delight. That God, God meant for his priests to enjoy him in this place where he's put them, in this temple. And then, of course, we've already talked about God walking with them. This is communion with God, uh, conversation with God. God is saying to his priests, enjoy me. Enjoy me. Enjoy this place. Enjoy me. Let's enjoy being together here. Exalt, enjoy. And then finally, the priest's role was to extend the life-giving presence of God. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with more images of me, God said, who reflect and resemble and represent me to the world. Multiply my goodness and glory through other image bearers. Take my life-giving presence to the ends of the earth. They were to extend uh, and expand the temple to the ends of the earth. Well, as, as you know, and we're going to get into chapter 3 in more detail later, but you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve failed to be the priests they were called to be. They failed to exalt and enjoy and expand the life-giving presence of God. They were, and so God exiled them from the garden temple and from his presence. And then he called Israel to do what Adam and Eve had not done. And we know how the story goes. Israel did not fulfill their role as the priests that they were called to be. And so God exiled them from the land which was supposed to be his temple. The promised land was supposed to be a temple. And he exiled them from the land and from his presence. And then his presence actually left Solomon's temple. So what then would happen to God's plan to build this cosmic temple that we read about in Revelation. Um, Adam couldn't build the blueprint. Israel couldn't build the blueprint. Who's going to do it? Well, you know, it's Jesus. Jesus came not only to build God's temple, but to be God's temple. Jesus is the true thin place where heaven and earth come together. And so listen, this is where I'm going to give you a lot of scripture uh, about Jesus, but listen to how he is the temple and the priest and is making a temple for himself. Jesus is the tabernacle. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and we all know dwelt among us, but the word is literally, he tabernacled, he tented among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus said himself that he's the temple. In John 2, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, John said, about the temple of his body. And therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the temple. Jesus is the tree of life. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. Remember, we said the tree of life uh, symbolized that people, in order to have life, they had to depend on God alone. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, i.e., eats from the other tree, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is the river of life. Some of my favorite verses, John 7, 37 to 39. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart... Getting to the best part. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. He's hearkening back to Ezekiel's vision. The Spirit can run out of you like the living water ran out of the temple. Jesus is the way back to the presence of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we remember that when Jesus cried out his last voice, on the last, last cry on the cross, the temple curtain, split in two from top to bottom. And Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. So Jesus is our way back to the presence of God, to the holy of holies. And in fact, it's not just that we get to get into the holy holy of holies when Jesus died, and the curtain was torn from top to bottom, the Holy of Holies got out. (laughs) The presence of God is now on the move through Jesus and his church. And speaking of that, Jesus has made us his temple. Paul said in Ephesians, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer the ones way outside of the court of the temple. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's us, Mountain Fellowship. We're a temple. But then Paul goes on to say elsewhere that each of our individual bodies is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's made us his temple by joining us to him, the cornerstone, and he's made us 
his kingdom of priests. What does it mean for us to be his kingdom of priests? Where is the temple of God today? Wherever the church is. Whether, wherever his people are. And so, wherever we are, um, as individual temples of God's, or as a church body, uh, there the life-giving presence of God is. And so here's what we are called to do as priests today. This is to answer that question. But what does this have to do with me today? Exalt, enjoy, expand, okay? Or extend. Exalt his life-giving presence wherever you go. Sounds simple. Not easy. We read earlier from 1 Peter 2 that we are living stones connected to the cornerstone. We are a holy priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We're a royal priesthood that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I have to ask us this morning, how are we proclaiming the excellencies, exalting Jesus by the way we work with people, serve people, speak with people in the places God puts us. Wherever we go, we are priests who are to cultivate the worship of God, the exaltation of his life-giving presence. The spirit of Jesus is in you to empower you to exalt him in the places he puts you so that people experience you as a thin place where heaven and earth come together. We're also called wherever we go to enjoy his life-giving presence. Remember Jesus said, he's the vine, we're the branches. He's saying, get life from me. In verse 9 of John 15, he said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How are you abiding in and enjoying the love of Jesus in the places he puts you every day? I was describing a difficult situation I was in to a friend the other day, and he asked me this question in the middle of my grumbling. He said, what are you thankful for in the middle of this? And what that did was shift me back into, oh, oh, wait. Jesus loves me in the middle of this. I need to relocate the vine and be attached to the vine and abide in his love. I do have things to be thankful for. Jesus is in you to enable you to enjoy him in the places he puts you so that you experience him as a thin place when you're wearing thin. And finally, to as priests, we are to extend his life-giving presence wherever we go. Um, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. Now, Many of us get the opportunity to do that as parents, 
and I'm thankful for all the little image bearers that you have created here. They're beautiful. But as disciples of Jesus, there's more. You don't have to have kids or make kids in order to obey that command to extend God's life-giving presence wherever you go. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority is given in heaven and on earth to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Um, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, while you do that, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's asking us to help shape others, <laughs> call others into the temple, into the living presence of God, and shape, help shape them into folks who exalt his presence, enjoy it, and also go out and extend it to others. And back to John 7, when Jesus said that whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, that's not only so that we can enjoy the life-giving water, but so that it will flow out of us as temples. And so that wherever we go, wherever the river flows through us, everything will live. People will live. So I want to ask, how are you filling your world with images of Jesus? People, human images of Jesus. Who are you investing your life in so that you... Uh, by God's grace, we'll begin to see them reflect and resemble and represent Jesus in the places he puts them. Friends, this is a challenge. We're all busy. We've all got 100,000 things going on. But we're called to invest in people so that they become temples of the living presence of God in the places God puts them. Now, you as parents, that gives you a glorious new way to look at what parenting is, discipling your children. You're doing it, and God's presence is in you as you do it. But we also have the opportunity to look at our neighbors, the nations, the next generation, and to say, God, who do you want me to invest my life in so that they too become an image bearer of Jesus wherever you take them? God promises he will equip you do it. All right. You and I are thin places. We are places where heaven comes to earth because Jesus dwells in us by his spirit. And we can take his life-giving presence into our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our conversations, our communities today, this week. And then let's continue to pray that God would make Mountain Fellowship a thin place where people can enter into the life-giving presence of God with us so that we can be a people through whom God will expand his life-giving presence to our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. That's it. We're temples. That's pretty cool. I hope that will encourage you this week. Let's pray. Father, um, 
<laughs> so much. That's a lot. And it only, it only scratches the surface of what your book says about what you're doing. And I pray that you would encourage us this morning um, to abide in you, to rest in you as our high priest, even as you send us out to be uh, your priests in the places you put us this week. Um, Help us now as we come and remember that you offered yourself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Um, Only your blood can cleanse us and make us uh, able to come into the presence of our holy God. We thank you. Um, So help us now as we meet you in this thin place at your table. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.